There's a kind of communion you can experience with God around the Lord's Supper that can't be experienced anywhere else. So it's important. It matters to Him. It is good for you. But secondly, when you partake of the Lord's Supper, you need to partake in a worthy manner, 1 Corinthians 11. So it's not just perfunctory religion. It is not just a walk through the motions. Two things are incredibly important. One is proper appreciation. That you remember and reflect on the sum and substance of what was done for you. Who you were and what God did to rescue you. So work intentionally to remember. When you Do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance is a word which means to look back and be impacted by what you see. It's like a memorial. You see a memorial, it should impact and provoke something in you as a consequence of what you remember. So it's not just looking back and, well, I remember that. It's being impacted by what you remember. The second thing about the Lord's Supper is just not proper appreciation, but what I'm going to call proper preparation. And that is dealing with the issues of the heart that would inhibit and diminish who He is and what He expects of you. We all stumble in many ways. We say we have no sin, we are a what? A liar, and the truth is not in us. So every Lord's Supper is an opportunity to take inventory. Not for the purposes of self-condemnation, but for the purposes of confession and cleansing. And it always saddens me when I see Christians pass the plate and they don't partake. My assumption is they know they are not rightly related to the Lord, so I'm, I'm glad they don't partake and maintain that status. But I would much prefer that they deal with the issue that prevents communion rather than pass the plate that allows them to experience community. So whatever it is, deal with it. Don't say, you know, I can't partake today because I've got this unreconciled situation. Deal with that unreconciled situation so that you can partake. Don't hang on to the things that are meant to be released and relieved at the Lord's Supper. Sin is toxic and destructive. You don't want to carry sin any longer than you have to. You want to deal with it. And this is a formal time when you can deal with it as you remember what it cost to really deal with it. If that makes sense, would you say amen? I just know that in the rhythm of Christianity, it can become perfunctory. You stand and sing the songs, you go through the motions, Do not do that with the Lord's Supper. And our subject this morning involves what I'm going to call a subtle and sobering obstacle to true communion with God. In James chapter 2, we've been talking about real Christianity, lifestyle and convictions of a biblical Christian. This is a sin that God would have you address, not overlook. I'm calling it subtle... I'm going to suggest that it's not obviously seen because in the church that, or to the church that James was writing, should have been obvious to them, but for some reason it wasn't obvious to them, this sin. 
In other words, they were practicing a pattern of non-Christian behavior, unaware perhaps that they were behaving in a way incongruous with their claims of Christianity. So I'm going to argue that what we're going to talk about today, and we started last week, must be subtle at some level, must be uh, promoted and prompted by pride, which enables you, or inhibits you rather, from seeing what otherwise you could see, because pride is blinding by definition. So this is subtle, potentially. So as I begin today, I just want you to, A, prepare for the next hour, partaking of the Lord's Supper, but two, do some inventory. Let the Spirit of God do what He does to provoke awareness of this reality that's unacceptable, non-negotiably. All right, let's read the text, and then I'll endeavor to unpack what we have left of it. So James starts in chapter 2, the book of James, "'My brethren, do not hold your faith in our Lord, glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism.'" So first of all, this is a passionate prohibition. You don't, unless you know the original language, you're not going to feel the weight of this, but it is an inflamed, energized, stop this. Present tense, you're doing this. And you've got to stop this right now. It's passionate. It's non-negotiable. This is a, you shall not, what a real Christian is not to do. And if you're doing it, stop it now. Why? Because it affects how you reflect the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that is meant to be revealed in the way you practice your faith. This is bad because it's sin. This is bad because it misrepresents God. It misrepresents Christianity. My brethren, stop it, literally. It's emphatic. Stop holding your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, and it's literally your faith in the Lord Jesus, who is the glory, definite article. He's got the glory, and when you do this personal favoritism thing, you diminish that glory. You deface it. Verse 2, here is what I'm going to call practical picture to explain. Personal favoritism, just for those of you who weren't with us last week, is a word which means to literally receive someone by face. It's to assess someone by external criteria, face value, based on outward appearance or assessment. It's a judgment or an opinion formed before all the facts are known because you only know what you see and you're assessing based on what you see. It's a preconceived unreasonable judgment, premature. It's an inclination to favor a person or dislike a person based on outward criteria and to treat a person in such a way as to potentially gain benefit from them or ignore a person because you realize I I can't gain any benefit from them. So my definition of personal favoritism or partiality or respect of persons, however your translation speaks about it, is this one. Personal favoritism or partiality, the passionate prohibition, thou shalt not, what Christians do not do, is this. 
to assess or to evaluate and base your treatment and attitude toward a person or a people group, keywords, on something that should not be the basis of how you treat them. Partiality, personal favoritism means to evaluate and base your treatment and attitude toward a person or a people group on something that should not be the basis of how you treat them and doing so because you believe you can benefit from them or because you believe you can't, which is the ignoring them side. So the practical picture begins in verse 2 as if there's the question raised, well, how, how would we be doing that? Well, let me illustrate how this unfolds, at least in one category of your life and ministry. Verse 2, for if a man, here's the illustration comes, momentary historical errors, he's a visitor, first-timers, Burbank, welcome, you're here. You want to try to assess them? That's what would happen. We're going we're gonna to weigh up. We're going to evaluate you based on what we observe here today, and we're going to treat you accordingly. So I think you're pretty special, so why don't you have the VIP $50 seat? You don't have to sit back there. You can come sit up here. But the idea here, here is that if someone is visiting. They're coming for the first time into your assembly, with a gold ring. They're a gold-fingered man, and they dress in fine clothes. And there's another man who comes in, a poor man. He's in dirty clothes. He's in workman garb, soiled perhaps, certainly not white shirt, tie, not designer, dirty. Verse 3, and you pay special attention, and that word means you eyeball them and assess them, and then you grant benefit to them, special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes. And you say, you sit here in a good place, we call that VIP seating. Now, in church, that tends to be at the back, Um, but at concerts and sports events, it's right here. You pay the most money for that, but clearly that's not the case here. (laughs) You pay special attention to the one, you say, you sit in the good place. Why? Because I've assessed and evaluated you based on your clothes and your apparent social status, and I'm going to elevate you. I'm going to give you special attention. And this practical illustration goes on to say, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there. In other words, you stand, not sit. Or if you're going to sit, you're going to sit by my feet, which is the cheap seats. So if I don't like you, I'm going to have you sit in these seats because clearly they're cheap at our class because they're readily available. Now that's the practical picture. Not hard to interpret. This guy's coming in, never met him. This other guy's coming in, never met him. You assess outward, exterior qualities and characteristics and you assign value and you make choices, which leads from the passionate prohibition and the practical picture to what I'm going to call a perverse pursuit. And that's in verse 4. Because housed in that transaction, that eyeball, special attention, assessment, you've made distinctions among yourselves. You've assessed and evaluated. You've discriminated is the word. 
and you've become judges with evil motives. Evil poneros is hurtful, and it produces pain. It's certainly going to produce pain to the person that you're treating without value, and it is also painful to you because it has spiritual implications. You have evil motives. Your purpose at some level is perverse because its goal, the way that you pursue this priority is is to use the rich guy for self-advantage. I'm going to treat him good because he has the potential to treat me good. My life will get better because I know him, I valued him, our little congregation will improve because he's here, he owns the business, we need the money, we're going to sit him in a good spot because he can help us. This other guy can't help us. So we use one guy and we abuse the other guy because our assessment is, you have nothing to offer me. And you know what that is? That's evil. You have become judges, and here's the first problem with prejudice, partiality, personal favoritism. It misrepresents God, and it usurps the position of God. Who is the one lawgiver and judge? Who is the judge of all men? Say it. God is, as appointed, Jesus is, as appointed by the Father. We're going to see this in James chapter 4. You ought to stop saying what you're saying about people because you're assessing things you don't have qualified to assess. So you look at a guy, or you listen to a guy, or you look at a woman, or you see how she dresses, and you assess, and you rate and rank them based on your observations of them. You are not qualified to do that. There is only one lawgiver, there's only one judge, and that's not us. Because he's the only one who can look beyond the outward things. God does not judge as man judges. He doesn't see as men see. He looks at what? The heart. And the value of a human being is rooted in who they are, not what they have or don't have, what status they enjoy or don't have, what color of their skin, what ethnic group they come from, whether they're male or female, bond or free, rich or poor. There is no distinction, Galatians chapter 3, in Christ. So the the essential problem, and this is where we were last week, is if you're going to do this, you misrepresent God because God has no partiality. He shows no partiality. The Scriptures say as it relates to the Lord, Romans 2.11, there is no partiality with God. So when you're partial, you misrepresent who God is and how God functions. He shows partiality to no one. Ephesians 6, 9, there's no partiality with Him. Therefore, Deuteronomy 1, 17, God's people who represent Him do not show partiality or respect of persons in any judgment you make. I charge you, 1 Timothy 5, 21, to keep these instructions without partiality and do, to do nothing out of favoritism. Let's go back to the Old Testament again. You want to worship God? You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. Ignore one, elevate the other, based on their perceived status. John seven twenty four. stop judging by outward appearances and start judging justly. 
James 3.17 says the wisdom from above is without partiality. So if you're functioning according to the wisdom that God dispenses, it's never partial. It never assesses based on outward criteria. And the biggest problem with it is God doesn't do it, doesn't like it, and forbids those who represent Him from doing it because it does violate Him. It violates and misrepresents what God does with all men, and it misrepresents what God did with us and does with us. And it takes the place of God, it usurps the place of God, what God alone does. And then, as I said at the beginning, it inhibits and misrepresents His glory. So stop it. If you're doing it, stop it. Because He doesn't like it. And any assessor of Christianity, if they come to Grace Church today and they watch us make choices about who we'll sit beside or who we'll sit with or who we'll talk to or who we won't talk to, who we'll value, who we won't value, if somebody sees that, they see something that misrepresents the God that we represent and the glory that is His, the glory that Christ deserves. And he said, if I be lifted up, I'll be drawn unto me. But if you lift up something that doesn't represent him, people are walking away from that. They're not drawn to that. That's a problem. That's why this is sobering. It's subtle because we don't necessarily see how it unfolds, but we discriminate or we make distinctions based on a lot of things. Our profession, our vocation, our dress, our looks, how much we are perceived to have or not have, by the home we live in, the neighborhood we're a part of, by the car we drive, and on and on, the people we know. Stop it. It misrepresents God. He evaluates nobody on the basis of those things. Well, there's other problems with it, and there's another problem. It's not just a theological problem. It is a logical problem. Look at verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, oh, by the way, I should read 5 because 5 came before 6. Listen, my beloved. Okay, listen is hearken. Pay attention to this. If, If I didn't get your attention yet by my representations of why this is so important, get this. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? So if He chose them, why wouldn't you take care of them? If He valued them, why wouldn't you value them? If God chose the rich or the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him, isn't that what God did? If He did, you should. Verse 6, But, On the other hand, that you should do this, but you haven't, but you have dishonored, you devalue. The word dishonor means you take weight and value away. You dishonored the poor man, the guy without perceived assets. Is not the rich who oppress you and is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Here's the logical issue. You're dishonoring the guy that doesn't harm you, and you're honoring the guy who does. You're not honoring the guy who honors God. You're honoring the guy who doesn't honor God. 
Here's the logical problem. When you're partial, you often live in a world that does not square with reality, or you function in a world that doesn't square with reality. It's not just a logical problem, it's a reality problem. This is what James is saying. He's saying in verse 6, the rich guys are the guys that are abusing you. That's the normative cultural reality. Christians were not typically wealthy. They were typically challenged with resources, and they were often poor. And the guys that are harming you and injuring you and abusing you are, the, are like the guy you elevated. Acts chapter 13, verse 50, early church persecution, Paul and Barnabas. The persecutors were aroused by women of high standing and leading men of the city. Saul, before he became Paul, was an upper crust religious guy of wealth and resource. Acts 8.3, he was the destroyer of the church, and he was dragging Christians in the early church, perhaps some of these men and women, and put them in prison. Turn over to Matthew 18. I just want to give you the flavor of abuse, kind of the culture norm of the rich dealing with the poor. Because there weren't the kind of protections if you couldn't pay. If you were a debtor, you're late on your rent. You've not fulfilled the expected obligation to somebody you're indebted to. Somebody with resources loaned you resources. Now it's pay me time and you can't pay. Here was the normative cultural pattern. And I take you here to give you a flavor of what it is James is talking about. This is the way it normally works. And you're promoting this guy. Matthew chapter 18, illustration of forgiveness and how many times you ought to offer it. Verse 23, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents, 20 years of wages, $10 million, a lot of money. And since he did not have the means to repay, the Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had until repayment was made. So the rich guy had the ability to enslave a man and his entire family if payment could not be made. Verse 26, the slave therefore falling down prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. That's two-thirds of a year's wages, 100 days' wages. And he seized him, and he began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. Fellow slave fell down, began to entreat him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. And he was unwilling to do to him what had been done for him. And he was unwilling, however, and he went and threw that guy in prison until he should pay back all that was owed. Hey, listen, this is not hyperbole. This is not exaggerated. This is reality. It's the way it worked. So undoubtedly, the idea that James is referring to is, so the guy who comes into the fellowship, 
the guy with the assets and the perceived capacity is from a group of people, potentially he is one of those people who abuses people like you. You can't pay, choke, enslave, incarcerate, or as this passage goes on to say, you can even hand them over to the tormentors until all is repaid. In this culture, the rich abused the poor if the poor couldn't pay. And James is saying, what's logical about you seating someone in that group, which is normatively defined by this activity as a valued asset, someone to be preferred, which is why he lays out in James chapter 2, is this not the guy? Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you to court? Answer, yep. Normatively, that's true. So why would you esteem them? Power players, religious and political upper crust are referred to in Isaiah 3 when the Lord enters into judgment with them, verses 14 and 15. The Lord enters into into judgment with elders, that's religious power players, and princes, those are political upper crust influencers, And he says to them, it is you, God speaking, it is you who have devoured the vineyard. You're the plunderer of the poor. What what do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor? I'm the Lord of hosts. That's not acceptable. That was normative. They dishonored those God honored. Why do you value and elevate and esteem them? That's the question. It's a logical problem. But verse 7 says, not only that, they blaspheme the fair name. That's Christ. Early church, Acts eleven twenty six. Christians were called, or, or followers of Christ were called Christians, Christ ones. They blaspheme the one that you bear their name. Be like somebody abusing the name Walls, abusing my family name. Why would you elevate someone who's an abuser of your name, a blasphemer of the one you're named for, your family member? Listen, this is what the upper crust and rich, often those in political power, they were the ones who said of Jesus, the fair one, he's a blasphemer. He's the prince of devils. That would be Matthew 27, 63. He's referred to as a deceiver. Luke 22, they were blaspheming him and saying many other things about Jesus. Why would you elevate them? Now, listen. As a Christian or as a human being, elevating someone who's abusing your family or abusing the one for whom you're named is like like honoring an enemy who desecrates... Let's imagine you've got a brother and he's in the military and he's, he's worked hard and he's served and he may have even sacrificed injury or, or loss. And some guy desecrates the flag that he fought and was injured for. That guy comes into your church, 
Why would you elevate him? That's really what James is saying. Or, let's put it a different way. The guy that loaned your family brother money, and he couldn't pay, so he broke his legs in order to tell him, you've got to pay, like the mob loan shark guy. Leg breaker, Larry. And Larry comes into the church. And that guy's broken your brother's legs because he couldn't pay. Hey, Larry, got a $50 seat here for you. You wouldn't do that. When you elevate, James is saying, those who abuse the name of Christ and those who follow the name of Christ, those who Christ loves, in this case, a reference to the poor and those without, you not only misrepresent me, you harm those that I care about. And you elevate those who harm your family. Why would you do that? Sobering thought is, when we do this, in this sense, you become like God's enemies when you're partial. You use your strength, opportunity to oppress the poor, give them lesser treatment, and you lift up those who abuse those who you care about, and you literally reverse the purposes of God. Calvin said it this way, this is, this is like honoring your executioners and injuring your friends. So let's be practical in this way. So when you discriminate, why do you discriminate? You're going to measure me based on the color of my skin? I served in the city of Alabama. That happened. You get the choice seat. You get this place. You can't use that bathroom. You can use that one. You can use that water fountain. You can't use that one. I assign value based on color. You can marry my daughter. You're the same color. You can't marry my daughter. You're of a different color. The biggest trouble I got in my church was when I was asked by a black choir member, a woman, if I would marry her to a white man who was also in the choir. Because the assessment was made, that's not okay. That's not right. Because I think about black people in a particular way. There are some places around the country still that believe there's kind of subpar status if you're black. Part of the curse of Ham, which is really a curse on Canaan, not Ham. It's really not on the black people. It's on the people in the Middle East, Canaan. But that doesn't matter because somehow we've concluded that if I'm a white guy, black people are my problem. And if I'm a black guy, white people are my problem. I remember I served in the inner city of Los Angeles with E.V. Hill at Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church, Watts. I lived in Watts with part of his congregation, spent a summer there. I remember the Sunday he stood up in church, and, and if you know anything about the black church, the pastor there, he's, he's the patriarch. He's like dad. He can say things that I couldn't say. And this is what he said. He said to this church in Los Angeles, it was right when the uh, Rodney King stuff was happening. He said to the congregation, our problem is not white. Our problem is blacky. 
It's blackie killing blackie. It's blackie stealing from blackie. It's blackie raping blackie. Our problem is not whitey. Our problem is blackie. Can you imagine saying that today? You know what he was saying? He's saying the problem is we assess based on skin color, and we're not focused on reality. Not the white people in the inner city of Los Angeles that are destroying your homes and our culture. We're destroying our homes and our culture. And I know what TV does, and I know certainly some bad actors who are white people. But he was giving them a dose of reality, which after the service, I said, Dr. Hill, I said, why did you do that? He said, they needed a dose of reality, Harrod. They needed to see what they couldn't see because they've been shaped by the culture. Listen, it's true that more people will be murdered this year by non-whites. It's a fact. But you know what? More, more people will die because of a white woman who took to the Supreme Court the desire to abort her baby. More people will die this year because of a white woman than all of the others put together. It's not about white or black. The reality is white people harm White people, black people harm black people, brown people harm white and black people. It's irrational. Listen, I, I had a car stolen by a white guy. I had a black guy steal my, my uh, leather jacket in high school. I had a Hispanic vandalize my car. So who am I going to be partial to? It's not rational. You don't measure people by the color of their skin or by their social status. Let me move on. There's also a legal problem. So uh, the bottom line is we go astray by favoring people based on outward criteria and ethnic background. I mean, we just did the Martin Luther King Day or... Some of you might have celebrated that. Listen, there's a lot of questions about maybe his character as a husband and certainly his theology. But I'll tell you, I like the statement in that speech, I have a dream that my four little children will live in a nation that will be judged by the color, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That should happen at church. Or not just by the color of my skin, but... Don't measure me by the clothes I wear or don't wear in terms of style. We will judge you if you don't wear clothes. <laughs> right, let me move to the legal problem. Verse 8. <clears throat> if, however, in other words, your reality doesn't square or reality doesn't square with the way you discriminate. Verse 8. If, however... You're fulfilling the royal law. Now, the royal law is the highest law. It's the law of the king. It's God's law. It's the law that's the highest with regard to behavior toward other people. If you are, verse 8, fulfilling the royal law, God's law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. 
Now, the assumption is why this verse is here is you could say, hey, listen, we're taking care of the rich guy. We don't know who he is at all. We're, we're taking care of him. We're showing him other-centered loving treatment. And if you're doing that, and if you were doing that for the right motives, you did well. Verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are what? Committing sin. And are, and by the way, the word committing, you're working sin. It's the word work. It's like you're manufacturing sin. It's in the present tense. So every time you show partiality, you're manufacturing sin. You're working sin. You're promoting sin. You you show partiality, you're, you're working sin. Sin is emphasized in the way this language, this verse is arranged. And you are convicted by the law as transgressors. So the law of God convicts you as a transgressor, a lawbreaker. So verse 8 would say, prejudice is a sin. It's a violation of the royal law, especially the commandments upon, because it's the one upon which all other commandments hang. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. You do that, you fulfill the law, you violate that, you break the law. So if you're doing that, you're doing well. If you're not doing that, you're not doing well. You're manufacturing sin, and you are, in the breaking of that law, a transgressor. So here's the bottom line, partiality is indicted here as a sin, and you are a lawbreaker. Maybe I could put it this way. You're a felon. Feel how heavy that is? It's no small issue. You're a lawbreaker. You're breaking the king's law. You're not treating somebody as you would want to be treated. You're a lawbreaker. God's law. Verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, has become guilty of all. Now, this is why I say this is so sobering. Because he goes on to say in verse 11, For he, God, the royal lawgiver, who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. In other words, we tend to rank sins. And he's saying, you can't do that. You commit murder, you're a lawbreaker. You commit adultery, you're a lawbreaker. You show partiality, you're a lawbreaker. You've broken the law. You're guilty of all, meaning the the law of God breaking it. Because the law of God, let me read this quote, I think it'll be helpful We divide up sins into sins, and we miss the gravity. God gave one law, consisting of many commandments. The golden chain of obedience is broken if one link is missing. If you're hanging over a precipice by a chain, and one link goes, you are lost. The idea is is that to be a prejudiced person, Showing you partiality based on some exterior cri- external criteria that is rooted in my sense of advantage or disadvantage you provide me, 
I am a lawbreaker and I'm guilty of breaking the law just like I had murdered or I'd committed adultery, which everybody would go, those are big sins. And I'm not saying partiality is equal in terms of its impact. I'm saying it's equally able to break the law and make you a felon before God. It's a big deal. And that's the argument that he's trying to make, is there are no lesser sins as it relates to breaking the law. Prejudice, like any other sin, breaks the law of God, and one falls into the consequence of that sin as a consequence. To obey all the commandments and yet to be partial is to be guilty as if you had broken them all. That's why it's a legal problem. You're guilty of no small indictment, on par with some of the weightiest transgressions. Let me go to the fourth problem, the eternal problem. Verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. So you got the royal law, you got the law of liberty. The royal law is because it's the king's law, it's the source from which it comes. And this is now the law not based on its source, but its outcome, freedom. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged. Now, let me talk about judgment. This verse could go two ways. If I'm a Christian and I get judged, it's at the Bema seat. The Bema seat judgment is for reward or loss of reward. So when it says, act and speak like somebody who knows there's a future assessment, that would be one way to understand this. And then you would go on to see verse 13, and the judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. They've not been impartial. They've not been kind to the person who has less to offer. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So Verse 13 would imply that if it's a Christian judgment, the Bema seat, I'm at the judgment seat of Christ. He's assessing hairy walls. And he's assessing me based on two things, how I talk and how I walk, how I speak and how I act. And if I've not shown mercy by being kind to the person who's poor, if I've not shown mercy, and this goes all the way back to orphans and widows, If I've not shown helpful support for the helpless and the vulnerable, my judgment before Christ will be without mercy. That sound good to anybody? Well, even if it doesn't sound good, it doesn't sound consistent with what grace has done for me. I'm going to argue that this judgment is not about me getting to the Bema seat as a Christian and having no mercy because I failed at this. Because the mercy I have received is complete because Jesus has endured my consequences. Christianity says he endured what I owed. He endured the consequence and the judgment that I owed. And therefore, I get mercy. So the idea that I'm going to show up at the judgment seat of Christ and receive no mercy is a contradiction. 
So then what would he be saying? I'm going to argue that the judgment he's referring to is the judgment that comes on a non-believer who manifests by his words and his actions that he's not a believer. Let me say it this way. Eternal judgment will come to those who are judged spiritually as in or out based on their conduct. Because that's what James is. If you talk like a Christian, you are a Christian. If you don't talk like a Christian, don't say you're a Christian. If a man says he's a religious man and he does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own soul and his religion is what? Vain. So he speaks in a way that if you judge him by his speaking, it demonstrates he's not a Christian. And if you don't take care of the helpless, the widow and the orphan, the most vulnerable, you're not acting like a Christian. That's not pure and undefiled. That man's religion is what? Empty, which is to say he's not a Christian. So I believe that verses 12 and 13 are meant to communicate that if you're speaking and acting and you're going to be assessed by your words and your actions as to whether you're in and out, in or out, you're judged by the law of liberty, which is the gospel, which is the law of love. And if you're not living the law of love, you're not speaking like somebody who's living out of the law of love. Let's, let's say I'm a I'm a businessman and my, my resources are not ever invested in the needs of others. Or I'm a, I'm a father or a husband and my words are harsh and unkind. Or I'm a, I'm a coach and my words are unkind. I'm a teacher and my words are unkind. I don't bridle my tongue. I'm a gossip. I'm harsh. I'm hurtful. I'll be judged and there'll be no mercy because there was no one that I was trusting in to endure my judgment. I will. And my actions define that I'm not in the kingdom of God. See, I think there's an eternal problem with partiality because partiality shows no mercy. We will receive God's mercy or his judgment. And that will be defined whether we're Christian or we're not a Christian, and we're judged spiritually as in or out, verse 12, by the law defined by liberty, the liberty that affects, which is spiritual freedom from sin, and freedom from fleshly things it displays. The law of liberty means I'm free from being a prejudiced, partial person. Verse 13, there will be eternal judgment for those who are not real Christians and possessors of genuine faith because they do not display the law of liberty but transgress it and they will experience no mercy because in their words and actions they've not displayed mercy and they've not said it or displayed it because they don't have the benefit of the gospel of God and the receiving of the mercy of God. The peril of prejudice. Turn over, and this is my closing verse passage, Job 13. So let me try to make this as clear because 
It's subtle. It's nuanced. Stop being partial. It's illogical because who are you going to pick as a category or a group? Rich guys never hurt me. Poor guys always do. Poor guys always hurt me and rich guys never do. Men always hurt me, but women never do. Women always hurt me, but men don't. Black guys always hurt me, but white guys don't. Who are you going to pick? So it's a logical reality problem. Two, when you pick anybody over anybody else to elevate them, you're guilty of breaking the law, the king's law. That makes you a felon before God. I'm using felon. It's not even strong enough. And then there's an eternal problem, that this is the pattern of your life. Your words and your actions will be the basis of judgment. The standard of judgment is the law of liberty, the gospel, the royal law, the law that is defined by mercy you've received and the expectation that mercy you will grant, Matthew 18. I got mercy. That first guy, he got mercy, but didn't show it to the second guy. Therefore, the first guy was indicted as a wicked man. Christians, claimers, who don't behave with mercy, having received mercy in their words and their actions, are guilty and are wicked, and they're not real Christians. They've misrepresented God, and they're guilty of partiality. All right, let me uh, just read this section for you. This is Job. You remember what happened to Job. He's going through a difficult time. His buddies show up, and what do those buddies do? They assess everything based on what they see. They're making judgments about Job's status based on their assessment of his reality. And so Job chapter 13 is Job's response to his convictors. And were they accurate in their conviction, yes or no? Nope. They were not accurate. They were saying, look, Job, you're in serious trouble here because you've got serious issues. You've clearly violated the commands of God and you're enduring the justice of God. True or not true? Not true. Rational assessment, from their vantage point it was, they're assessing him externally and assigning value based on those external assessments. Verse 6, Job responds, After he says in verse 5, I wish you'd have kept your mouth shut. Oh, that you would be completely silent and it would become your wisdom. In other words, your wisdom would be to keep your mouth shut because what you're saying to me is not helpful. Verse 7, will you, verse 6 rather, please hear my argument and listen to the contention of my lips. This is Job's response to his accusers. Will you speak what is unjust for God? Because they were saying, this is how God views it, and I'm viewing you the way God views you, which means they're misrepresenting God. Verse 7, will you speak what is unjust for God and speak what is deceitful for him? Will you show, keywords partiality for him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well when he examines you, or will you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely reprove you, watch verse 10, if you secretly show partiality. Verse 11, will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall on you? Let me tell you what Job just said. When you measure me 
based on external criteria. You're representing God. And because you're not accurately assessing me, you are maligning God. And there is partiality in you. And when it comes time for you to be evaluated, that's going to be exposed. And then he says, and doesn't the majesty of God terrify you that if you're partial like that, if you're an external assessor, doesn't the fact that the majesty on high is going to assess you and reveal the secrets of the motives that motivate you, your judgments, your actions, doesn't that slow you down a little bit? It should. So let me conclude with this statement. Partiality is a big deal. It's not logical. It produces legal problems for you and for me because breaking the law in one place makes me guilty of the weight of the law. Just like being a murderer, less like being an adulterer. And if I'm acting and speaking as a person who displays no mercy in what I say and do, I am under the judgment that has no mercy. On the other hand, if I've received mercy, that mercy will triumph over my judgment, even if I fail. Father, thank you for the time this morning. I pray in Jesus' name that you would allow us, even as we partake of the Lord's Supper in the next hour, by your Spirit to assess the things we say, the things we do. Do they reflect the law of love and the law that produces liberty, frees us from prejudice and partiality, Lord, would you allow us to see the subtle ways hidden in the heart that will someday be revealed that motivate us to esteem some and not others, to ignore some just because they don't look like us, they don't dress like us. By their appearance, they would seem unacceptable and we, we move away. And Lord, would you help us to understand as a Christian community That's a violation of the highest order. It demeans the glory that belongs to Jesus and the Christian gospel that he represents and that we represent. So Lord, grant us grace to see it, to identify it, and deal with it. Our problem isn't a people group or particular kind of person. Lord, our problem is the sin and depravity that circulates in our heart and culture, and it is a respecter of no person. Help us to live like that. Help us to live truly Christian, red and yellow, black or white, male or female, rich or poor. Help us to live worship and love with no distinction. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.